Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Mickey Noonan and there is a fox in my garden. Lucky That's nice. woman. It's well nice, although she is injured, but she is having a feast of cat food. Oh, that's less nice for Clarky. He doesn't know about it, Jen, and what he doesn't know won't hurt him. Fair. (laughs) He's read on cat Twitter that the kindest thing to do is give some of your food to the Fox Bank, and he's been down and donated it. Yeah, he's he's big on social media. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I've decided this period of history should forever be known as shit Christmas. It's yeah. the shittest Christmas ever, isn't it? I it's, don't know. I've had some pretty shit ones. <laughs> it, uh, it, it just every day reminds me of Christmas. I wake up and it's like I'm in my house. I'm eating biscuits. I'm watching telly. My neighbours are waving at me. You know, all the nurses are at work. It's Christmas, but shit. But if it was Christmas, I could get pissed. And I can't. I still think even if it was Christmas when you were pregnant, Jen, it's frowned upon. That's a good point. And just to be clear, I didn't get pissed last Christmas because I was pregnant. Well, there you go. Um, It's your second shit Christmas of the year. It is my second shit Christmas of the year. That's not fair, is it? Have you got any bright news about yourself, Jen? Well, it's quite bright, yes. (laughs) I'm Jen Offord and I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yeah, right. But I mean, that is an opinion, I suppose, rather than a fact. And one that I think Helen from Merthyr Tidville, hi Helen if you're listening, she'd possibly disagree with it. What are the chances that she's listening, Jen? <laughs> I think fairly slim, although she may tune in just to be angry with me. I'm not sure. We'll have well, some I... of your sweet, sweet clicks. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, I talked to Hilary Henrique from Charity Nakoa about how they're continuing to provide support to children of alcoholics in lockdown UK. It's World Autism Awareness Week and I chat to author and artist Charlotte Amelia Poe about their book, How to Be Autistic. Comedian Rachel Paris tells us what it's like to have coronavirus, as well as what's coming up for fans of The MASH Report. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to personal trainer and media fitness expert Anna Reich about how you can stay fit during lockdown. Hey, yep, she's mentioned Hitler, she's just said I know, Reich. I know, so lad, so I know. Up. <laughs> we have a special guest, not Hitler, as Dunleavy does disaster, <laughs> does the core. But first, PPE... WTF and C-U-N-T. S. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we look at the week's news and say, fucking hell, was that only a week ago? (laughs) Oh, I don't even know what day it is anymore. But standing outside my front door at 8pm last Thursday, it was properly emotional to hear the coordinated applause, pop banging and dog barking in gratitude for the NHS and its workers on the front line. But, as our Jen said on Twitter, clapping's all well and good, but a government that hadn't systematically dismantled the NHS over the last 10 years, leaving it woefully underprepared for everyday emergencies, let alone a pandemic, would have made the current situation, I don't know, better? Slightly less terrifying with access to life-saving equipment. Shut up, Mickey. Now isn't the time to politicise things. You Hitler. Um, similar. I am. I am worse than Hitler. You because... are. <laughs> Helen, get off the line. Um... <laughs> As it stands, our frontline key workers are putting themselves and their families' lives on the line, looking after the infected without the personal protective equipment or PPE that they desperately need. Two doctors have died. 
On Monday morning, the chair of the British Medical Association, Dr. Charles Nogpaul, said, I'm getting messages from doctors still saying that there are shortages or they are having to ration equipment. We already have many doctors telling us that they're extremely concerned that they feel the level of PPE that they currently have is not adequate to protect themselves and their colleagues against COVID-19. Doctors here will understandably be concerned when they see images in the media of their colleagues around the world treating patients in full overalls and full face protection and asking why the same is not recommended or available here. So it is beyond doubt that many NHS workers have coronavirus, but until very recently, and I'm talking the morning of Monday the 30th of March that I'm writing this, so actually let's call it stupidly, recklessly recently, they didn't even have access to coronavirus tests, with NHS workers merely instructed to self-isolate once their symptoms reach a certain threshold. Yep, it's taken two months since the first case of COVID-19 in the UK for coronavirus testing for NHS workers to be, and I quote, beginning to be rolled out this week. And what of former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt, who has been vocal in his berating of the government for its handling of PPE and testing for NHS workers? Well, it turns out the Department of Health rejected high-level medical advice about providing NHS staff with certain protective equipment during an influenza pandemic because stockpiling it would be too expensive. That was under Hunt's watch, which just underlines why I am tired of people calling for this not to be made political, because of course it fucking is. It's inherently political and it's like just ludicrous that people can't see that. I can accept that maybe people feel a bit like, I want us all to be united and for there to be something nice. And so I can accept like a bit of the shit I got on Twitter last week in that respect, although it was not expressed in the most pleasant ways by some people. It's it's the same thing. You get it absolutely everywhere. I, I've even had a boss who was like it. If you flag something up in advance that's going to be a problem, people will tell you you're being negative and you need to get mm-hmm. on board. If you flag it up at the time when it's happening, people will say, now's not the time for this. Don't politicise it. And if you flag it up afterwards, people say, oh, you're still going on about that. And you're like, when is the good time to say the NHS has been fucked or like stripped down to the bare bones? I'm thinking eight o'clock on Thursday, all of us at the same time outside our front doors. I feel like there's two ways we can come out of this situation and I very much hope it's one way over the other. We either, when this all ends and things go back to whatever normal may be afterwards, that, you know, there's a massive people-pleasing budget where the NHS gets like a fuckload of cash and they're massively rewarded for what they've done here. Or the alternative is it's completely, completely fucked and that gives them the opportunity to do what they've been trying to do for ages and just sell it off. Yeah. I mean, the, the first one's a lovely dream, Jen. It was a tale of two dickheads last week, as Mike, Sports Direct Ashley, and Tim, Soggy Lion Weatherspoon Martin, <laughs> competed for the most socially irresponsible employer of the Generation Award. And in the case of Sports Direct, we're already talking about a company where it has previously been alleged that one of its employees gave birth in a toilet while at work, severing the umbilical cord of their newborn child with a box cutter because they were too scared to miss their shift. And it's hard to damage a reputation already this bad, right? Wrong. Fucking hell. Jesus <laughs> Christ on a bike. So Ashley was forced to back so down Jesus last Christ week. Jesus Christ on an exercise bike. <laughs> <laughs> he was forced to back down last week and said he was deeply apologetic after initially refusing to close his shops following the government's imposed lockdown of all but those 
businesses deemed essential. In a letter to the Prime Minister published on Twitter following the order, Chris Wooten, Chief Financial Officer of Fraser's Group, PLC, which owns Sports Direct, argued that Sports Direct was in a unique position to service the nation given that, and I quote, looking after physical and mental well-being during this unprecedented period of social isolation will be extremely important. Now, it's hard to argue with that as a concept, but the internet is a thing also, you know, for shopping and that. And have you ever been to a Sports Direct? Have you ever been in a Sports Direct shop? Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, so Mick, you'll understand this. I'm not sure how useful that caramel rucksack from the 80s or the pack of three fluorescent golf tees are going to be right now in terms of, you know, keeping up morale and and whatnot, keeping everyone active. Fuck off, Jen. You know that I've got fluorescent golf tees all around my house. (laughs) Jen, where am I going to get my sports socks from? Well, the internet, Hannah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Good point. (laughs) <laughs> they do sell a lot of socks, actually, in Sports Direct. Like, do they still have them? You know, the ones from the 80s, the white ones. The white ones, yeah. Yeah, I think they still sell those in Sports Direct. Last time I saw my Uncle Dennis, which was about three years ago, he had a pair of those socks on that said, West Germany, and then like a football team logo <laughs> on it. And my brother was like, how the fuck old are those socks? Or has someone just found them in the bottom of a bin? Like in... <laughs> A bit of a warehouse of Sports Direct that nobody's been in for 20 years. I always judge companies and indeed individuals who have a giant Sports Direct mug in their cupboard. I just think they're outrageous. (laughs) Ever the hero, Ashley later apologised and admitted that the letter was ill-judged and poorly timed. Yes, Mike. Yes, it was. Meanwhile... From the man who bought you the five quid burger and a pint lunch and uh, Brexit, Tim Martin ruffled a few feathers last week after he refused to cut his hair. No, he refused (laughs) to assure his workforce of more than 40,000 people that he would cover their wages during the closure of his 850 Weatherspoons pubs. In a video, Martin helpfully suggested that staff might like to join the workforce of supermarkets during that time in order to cover their wages. He is an absolute weapons-grade bell job. He just... (laughs) I just don't know what to say about him because I just get stuck on the hair every time. He added that Weatherspoons could not afford to cover wages until government stumped up the money that they've pledged to help businesses retain staff during this time. Weatherspoons recorded a net profit of more than 100 million quid last year, just FYI. Anyway, tail between his legs, soggy tail between his legs. Oh, that's horrific. (laughs) It is, sorry. I take it back. He probably dragged it on the floor of a Weatherspoons toilet. It's just covered in fluff and bits of ash. Yeah. (laughs) Following petitions by MPs and a bit of public service graffiti, Martin later confirmed that the pub chain would pay its staff up to 80% of their wages in line with the government's commitment and without delay. I would say well done, but I'd be lying. It would would stick in your throat. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting about Martin? Like, obviously, like Brexit. His hair. Yeah, well, that. <laughs> obviously, Brexit is still a thing. But I made a decision that after, you know, we actually left, you know, and we couldn't stop it and the last election, that I was just going to have to accept that Brexit was going to happen. And that maybe, maybe my worst fears wouldn't come true. But if you look at some of its biggest cheerleaders like Farage and Martin and people I don't like want to look at them, Hannah. Don't make me look at them. <laughs> But they are the, the people that are going, oh, coronavirus will be fine. 
And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, Brexit's going to be a massive disaster because <laughs> this isn't fine. And therefore, everything that they've said, I didn't trust it, but I tried to think about Brexit in a positive way. And I can't because of pricks like him. It's quite hard to feel positive about much at the moment. Yeah, well, bad news is I'm going to go to America now to see how oh, they're God. coping. Partly because I actually can't bear to look at Italy or Spain or the many stricken cruise liners now floating around the world hoping that any port will take them in. I mean, holy fuck. All obvious jokes about the horrors of being on a cruise aside. Can you even imagine it? I mostly want to talk about America because Donald Trump is a cunt. And the more people that (laughs) say that right now, the better. Donald Trump is a cunt. Jen? Thirded. Thirded. Can I say that? Yeah. Donald Trump is a cunt. There you go. Better. Say what you like about Boris Johnson, and believe me, I have. No one but no one is handling this global crisis worse than the man in the White House. Well, he's not as bad as Hitler. (laughs) Well, It's just your opinion, Helen. Pipe down. (laughs) (laughs) Remember back in 2016 when moderates and left-wingers around the world rent our clothes at the thought of Trump having the nuclear codes? This sometimes hyperbolic response to his election, plus the passage of time, has led many, not on this podcast right enough, but many to wonder if all of this wasn't a fuss over nothing. Well, I think we've got our answer here. There is no job he is less suited to and no time when such suitability would be needed more. America is about to be hit by something it's entirely unprepared for and they might as well be being led by a turd on a stick. (laughs) It's hard to know where to start with his catalogue of failures, Was it that he got rid of the pandemic department because he didn't like people and, I quote, doing nothing? Fucking hell. (laughs) Oh, dear. Was it his claim that COVID-19 was a Democrat hoax? Interestingly, he later claimed to have recognised this pandemic before anyone else because, of course, he did. (laughs) Of course he did. Was it arguably causing the death of a man who drank chloroquine phosphate, an additive used to clean fish tanks that's also found in an anti-malaria medication touted by Trump, erroneously as a treatment for COVID-19? Was it his statement that one day, like a miracle, the virus will disappear? Or his insistence that tests were available when they weren't and then calling them beautiful? Because what the fuck, Donald, is there nothing you won't objectify, even objects? Is it the series of excruciating press conferences which I've had to stop watching because a bit of me dies inside every time? The press conferences in which medical experts are asked questions about Trump's popularity or see their commander-in-chief tell the world these guys hadn't even heard of coronavirus until they read about it in a newspaper. They stand behind him, suppressing laughs, breaking rules about face-touching to full-on facepalm, and blinking so furiously I became convinced one of them was trying to communicate in Morse code. (laughs) The only point in watching them, it seems, is that if a soul is ever to visibly leave a body and walk away on live (laughs) TV, it will be here. As I speak, tented hospitals are going up in Central Park and New York finds itself again the epicentre of a pandemic. Heaven help them, because Donald J. Trump certainly won't. They're genuinely fucked. I've got friends and family all over America and I actually am worried about them possibly more than I'm worried about people here because, like I say, say what you like about Boris Johnson. Like, we do actually have a healthcare system which will catch people and they have got nothing there. 
Would you like some good news now? Oh, yes, please. Okay, well, congratulations to Professor Dame Mary Beard, world-famous classicist, top bird, and now trustee of the British Museum. Beard has been appointed by the board of the museum. Despite last year's kickback by number 10, which gets to approve the bulk of the museum's 25 trustees, because of her pro-European views. The board quite rightly objected to this, and they have gone ahead and appointed her anyway. The Press Association quoted a Downing Street source as saying the administration was delighted and had no reservations over her appointment which should have happened sooner. Still, I suppose we're feeling a bit more comfortable with experts these days, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have good news too. News that handily doubles up as something to do as isolation fever gets the giddy juices flowing. I mean, it starts with an apology from me for the following pronunciation, but Netherlands-based Instagram account Tusen Kunsten Quarantine, which translates as Between Art and Quarantine, is doing sterling work in making boredom beautiful. The premise is simple. Bored at home? Recreate one of your favourite artworks and send it in. The best ones are uploaded for the amusement of everybody else who's bored at home. It's like, you know, Tony Hart. It's like the gallery. You can make it happen. It is lovely stuff. Instagram account at COVID Classics, created by four US roommates, is also worth a look, with the recreation of Saturn devouring his son a particular highlight. The Getty Museum in Los Angeles has also got in on the act, tweeting the following challenge. Choose your favourite artwork, recreate it using three items lying around your house and share it with the world on social media. The joy is you can take part even if you're flying solo in lockdown. Pets, furniture, that stockpile of toilet roll, it's all art in the making. Yesterday I saw a couple who had done like a frankly epic recreation of the Arnold Feeney wedding. I don't even know where he'd found a hat that looked like that hat. I mean, it was it was incredible. Let's get involved. We're going to try and get involved. Keep an eye on our Instagram account, yeah. people, at Standard Issue Podcast. Does anybody fancy doing something helpful? Let's call this helpful news. Yes. Sure, why not? Yes. If you're stuck at home wondering what you can do, Helen Lewis, who you can hear chatting to Mickey and Jen in one of our International Women's Day podcasts, had a suggestion on Twitter this weekend. And I quote, This is a great time to write to your MP and pressure them to release pregnant women and mothers of young children currently in prison. It's a non-violent, low-flight risk population. Ditto the women in Yarlswood. She is, as usual, absolutely right. Prisons are petri dishes for this virus, putting everyone who lives and works there at risk and, of course, adding to the pressures on the health service. Women serving short sentences for non-violent crimes pose little risk to wider society, especially as they, like all of us, will essentially be under house arrest if released and will be needed by their families now more than ever. So yesterday I took Helen's advice and I wrote to my MP to say just that. And if you can find the time, I'd suggest that you do it too. More news next week. Thanks, Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we focus on your fun bags. Do your boobs hang low? Can you swing them to and fro? Can you tie them in a knot? Can you tie them in a bow? Yes, 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 and hell yes. Welcome to lockdown, my friends, where I've mainly been wearing my tits as armpit warmers. Well... Stop that selfish nonsense and put a bra on immediately, says the Daily Mail. 
Because Christ knows a pandemic is no excuse for women not to stay perky in the chebs. Hard-working horn dogs are going to need something nice and bouncy to look at during this crisis. Tits for victory and all that. Victoria Shelton, garment technologist at figleaves.com, told the bastion of feminism that is female that if breasts are unsupported, they could suffer damage to the Cooper's ligament, the connective tissue in the breast that help maintain structural integrity. The use of breasts is the Daily Mail's choice, not mine, as for some reason I find it the most lascivious way to describe boobs. Remember Michael Gove drinking a glass of water? Yep, that level of wet lip is what it makes me think of. Uh... Anyway, she was backed up by professional fitter Sandra Dyke, who said, Not wearing a bra will over time have an effect on your posture too. A supportive bra helps your core and posture. Don't wear a bra and not only will you see your boobs droop, but you may also gain round shoulders. Right, the thing is, age and gravity also takes its toll on the balls and no one's telling the men to wear a supportive cup. Women, listen, if you can't be fannied with the -the over-the-shoulder boulder holder right now, we got you. Ditch the titsling, free your tatty bojangles, and to hell with the consequences. I saw when I was looking up various words for boobs, just uh, to get some variety, that some people refer to them as the Mitchell brothers, and that made me laugh. (laughs) Hi, I am joined on the phone by Hilary Henriquez. Hello, Hilary. Hello. Hilary is the founder of the charity NACOA, which is the National Association for the Children of Alcoholics. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Hilary, can you tell us, just to start off with, what it is that your charity does? Yes, we provide information, advice and support for everyone affected by parents' drinking. And that includes people of all ages. And we run a helpline, uh, which is confidential and free, and where we provide for young children a a level of confidentiality that perhaps they can't get elsewhere um, from their teachers or, or from other people in their area because of statutory problems. What we do here is we provide for children the same sort of rights, really, as adults have about their privacy. The last few weeks, obviously, have been... Totally, well, unprecedented seems to be the word of the week, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) Now, when school shut last week, our listeners will know this, my dad was an alcoholic, although a high-functioning alcoholic, so was all right while he was at work. And when the schools closed last week, I I thought two things. The first thing is, you know, children are now at home with their parents when perhaps they wouldn't have been. And secondly, if their parents are at home and if their parents are anything like my dad, they themselves will be drinking more during that period. Is that a fair estimation of the problem you're now facing? I think it is. I think also there's heightened fear and heightened fear of being isolated. And I think those things are commonly felt. They probably are the two things that children of our colleagues talk about most is the idea that they're frightened. And it's like a free floating fear. You can't necessarily name what the fear is about and also that they feel isolated from other people. So here we are in this awful situation where we're having to socially distance ourselves from other people, and that's causing a greater fear and a greater feeling of isolation because, of course, they can't get away. And children do use things like school and, I don't know, going to the park as a way of respite from often very difficult and challenging lives and all of those avenues of of help and support have gone 
And so there is an awful lot of fear out there, an awful lot of not understanding and not knowing how to cope with it. And especially if children have taken on the role of carers within their families, which they quite often do. You know, imagine being seven years old and you know how to um, do the washing up and you know how to make the bed and you know how to make some pasta for your little brother or sister. And then suddenly you're in a situation where everyone's panicking and everyone's scared. So it's even worse for for the seven-year-old child who's acting as a parent, which is sort of where services like us can come in because we are open, we are staying open, we plan to throughout because what they very often need is, is someone to say, you know, what's happening? You know, what can I do? What, what, I, what, I, what can't I do? And what we have done, actually, this week, we've got a small film which is going out, which will tell the great British public about the problems that children of alcoholics are facing, particularly at the moment, and actually giving them a way of help. And what we're saying is children find it hard anyway to reach out for help so what we need to do is just be kind and reach in and just be there for them and and that's what the helpline is really it's just a being there when there's no one else who seems safe in their lives and like you say it's not just children adults who have parents who are alcoholics are also going to be in a situation now where not catching coronavirus is not necessarily going to be an alcoholic's priority right now is it no it's going to be, where am I going to yeah. get a drink? Get the next drink, yeah. So socially distancing is, is not something that's going to be necessarily at the forefront of their mind. I, I, I just think some people need to drink. Yeah. And, 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 that, and that's what they're doing. And I'm not criticising them. I'm just saying I don't think it's a wise thing to do at all. But I, I think what we do need to do is to accept the fact that there are people who are not going to stop drinking. And we know that there have been, um, certainly in Ireland, there's lots of information now about the huge increase in buying alcohol. And because when people need to drink, and that's the reason apparently why off-licenses have been deemed essential, is that what people don't want is for people to be withdrawing and then having to go to hospital in order to be taken care of because of course withdrawing from alcohol can be lethal yeah um so there's all sorts of stuff going on isn't there yeah and i think also probably that there may not i don't know if there are limits now i don't think there's any limits on how much alcohol you can buy for instance from the supermarket so i think very often people may be people who drink and and and, you know need to drink and and are not going to stop drinking for this and actually maybe i don't know what they're going to do are they going to think oh well this is a terrible time i need a need to drink sort of thing it's quite a good um excuse isn't it really to drink living in this um but so i think people will be bulk buying alcohol but then of course if they are dependent on alcohol what they are likely to do is not to limit themselves to certain amounts so therefore i think we're going to see an increase in drinking and increasing drinking is going to cause very many more problems in the household with children who are pretty much trapped there so there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about everything and children not having a way of escaping even if it's half an hour to go or an hour or whatever it is go to scouts or cubs or or whatever children do so imagine in that household and we know that from a big study we did very many years ago actually it was a huge study that children whose parents drink are 
six times as likely to experience social violence at home. Wow. So imagine with, yeah, it's huge, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely huge. So I think that in the current situation where people may be bulk buying alcohol, they are likely to be drinking more, especially if they're functioning generally and don't drink at work, but are now drinking at home. And so I think we're going to see a huge increase in domestic violence. Um, yeah, and I think that's something we need to address, really, and also need to be ready, ready yeah. for to help rather than. I mean, I'm not criticising people here. I really, I've never met someone who drinks who said to me, you know, oh, one day I woke up and I thought, oh, I'm going to start drinking too much today and ruin my family's life. You I mean it doesn't happen like no. that, does it? And another one of the problems is, I mean, I'm 46. My dad died three years ago, and I didn't ever really talk about it to anyone because of the way you know you know shame guilt all of that stuff works and loyalty a loyalty to my dad that I wasn't like spilling his business outside of the house that it's kind of the worst possible scenario now because there'll be a lot of children that people aren't even aware that that should have an eye kept on them Absolutely. But it's sort of interesting, I think, if you give people some information, I quite often have said to people, because people say, well, I, you know, I think there might be a problem next door because they're shouting all night or, you know, they seem to have an awful lot of recycling or whatever. Um, so sometimes if, if we, if what we do is practice clear sightedness, it's sort of seeing things that perhaps we may instinctively want to avoid what we can then do for children living in these homes is to see them and recognize them and just say morning john how are you today rather than god it all kicked off in your house again last night didn't it yeah because john knows it kicked off last night and john also knows that he's not allowed to talk about it and he will be putting up the walls around him and pushing that neighbor away whereas actually just how are you today? Lovely day today, isn't it? Gosh, sun shining, isn't it great? And you you don't need to keep up a comp. You don't need to do any more than that. Just be there. Just be someone who isn't critical, who isn't judging you or your family, but someone who just sees you and sees John and looks John in the eye and says hi. So neighbours are very, are very important in this situation. I think they are very important, and and I think even if you know they're not going to go so far as to to speak to the children i think what what we have to do as a nation actually is stop talking at children about the problem family because that makes the child feel a problem child and part yeah. of a problem family i think what we need to do is stop judging and start looking at the facts and providing much more compassion really for people who who have this problem because it is a problem people do not choose to drink too much and and there are you know honestly very few services out there for them and there are even fewer for their children but i think if what we can do is to unhook people's idea that drinkers are bad people that they don't care about their families that they only look after themselves all of those sorts of really negative things if we could stop thinking like that 
and looking at why. And very often it's genetic and very often it's passed from one generation to another. So it's it sort of it's not easy. But if if we start understanding that it's something that needs help and provide help in a way that those parents can access, then their children will come forward too. Because at the moment there is very there there are too few services out there and children are being sort of held tight, if you like, within their families. And they will have learned, you know, don't talk. We don't talk about this. This is our secret. This is what's going on here. It's nobody else's business. And they're taught not to trust. Oh, don't talk to that nosy next door neighbour. Yeah. Don't you know, never talk to him because he's just out to get us. And if you live like that as a child, what you what you do is you stop feeling because you can't cope with feelings that you don't understand, you don't know where they're going. So you sort of stuff them. But the problem is, of course, that those feelings are in there. And, and a lot of those feelings will be a feeling of guilt, you know, that, that they're responsible for their parents drinking, which clearly they're not. But to them... They think that if only they do something different, a parent may stop drinking. But it's it's just so important that we, you know, unravel this alcohol problem that we have in the UK and start to look at it in a different way. So we don't have children who have swallowed all of their, you know, all the anger from their youth or guilt from their youth or that it's not fair in their youth and all the shame that builds up. Because that will come out, you know, it, it won't just disappear when they are 16 years old and can move out of home. Those problems stay with them and they will need to come out at some point. Or, and I think this is one of the reasons why um, drinking can be seen as a family problem and, and, and multi-generational, drink you know, may work for them. It uh, may take yeah. shame away from them. Tell me about it. <laughs> Um, can I ask you about the logistics of the last couple of weeks for you? you your helpline is still open and functioning, isn't it? Which is yeah, impressive. It is. It is. Um, what we've done is we have, most people are working from home. And what we have done, we, we made a decision sort of, I don't know when, a week or so ago, that what we were happy with was works for um, staff, to do helpline email from home we've never done that before we've always kept the telephone and helpline email here and i think for very good reasons because very often you know what you're dealing with is distressing and um it's very important that you uh, that there is someone to help someone who's taken a stressful call to debrief from that and we have a routine of you know, filling things out and putting them in a drawer and closing the drawer and locking the drawer. So you leave things behind you here, knowing that someone else is coming in to pick it up. But when you're at home, you don't have that at all. Um, And also you have in your home, you know, things that you may never have thought you'd hear. Um, Because, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and uh, and very, very soon on, I realise if I ever thought I've heard everything now, I was very quickly wrong, and I'm, it's still like that today. Yeah. So that's why we, we keep it here, and I think that's why we've been able to keep going and why vol- we're so lucky with volunteers um, because they find it safe here and that they can leave things here rather than taking them home. So at the moment, it's staff who have been around for a very long time who have all done the training and who 
usually work at least one or two shifts a week anyway as a volunteer helpline counsellor. So they're doing email from home. But what we've not done, and I don't think we'll do it, but then this time next week you may (laughs) find me wrong. I'm really not happy for the telephone helpline to leave here because that's where when you have an email you can actually look at it and read it quite quickly can't you down the center of the page so you know what it is with a phone call you pick up the phone and you have no idea who's there you have no idea what someone's going to say or want to talk about and so there is this sort of unknown thing which is why i think it's important to keep it here so we can support whatever um, has happened on that call So in the moment, we're having only two people in the office. We've limited the hours because we think we can cope with two till seven on the telephones. And that's what we hope to continue to do. I'm sure we'll be able to do it, to be honest with you. Um, But there are two of us. I hope so. Obviously, you had fundraising events planned um, that I I, I assume you've had to cancel. I take it all donations are welcome. All donations are welcome. And in fact, we survive on people doing sponsored events and things like that. Last year, I think it made up almost two thirds of our income. And the most amazing thing is, and I love this, is that the people doing the sponsored events are usually, not always, but usually adult children who grew up with this problem. Yeah. And what, what they're saying to us is, oh, my gosh, I wish you were you know, around when I was small or I wish I'd known about you. So thank you for this, because I know now lots more people are going to find out about go. And they're doing fantastic things because they want today's children to have the help and support that they didn't have. And that makes me like feel all goosey, really, because that's exactly the reason five of us set up the charity. 1990 children of alcoholics are really compassionate towards each other yeah and and so that's why the fact that so much of our funding comes from people who understand the problem i, th- um, I think that is, is the, great that is the key to it um i interviewed uh, jonathan ashworth who's your patron oh yeah uh, last year we, he and i have a very similar experience as in our dads both worked but only drank when they were off yeah, work yeah but then yeah. both basically retired and went right off the rails because they just yeah. didn't have the structure of work anymore. Yeah. And yeah. it was very odd to spend time with someone who I'd never met before, but who implicitly understood me from, from the yes. get-go, which is a very, very odd situation to be in. Children internalise all this stuff. And, um, and, and I'm going to say something that people don't like very much, is we keep saying, oh, don't worry, children are resilient. But actually, they are and they'll find ways to cope but some of those coping mechanisms will be harmful for the rest of their lives yeah and so it's it's not enough for us to say oh don't worry children are resilient they'll they'll look they'll find a way because their way is not going to be a way where they can become who they are they can find out you know that there are people out there who love them they can realize actually i am lovable oh my gosh you know this guy talk this you know next door neighbor says hello to me now yeah. oh and it's it's a new it's a new feeling because you know if, if you're inside the house and everyone is just you know stuck in the roles that we end up playing there is no social contact and there is no meeting of eyes and there is no you know patting on the back or stroking your arm or it can be, not always, but it can be a very loveless situation, not because 
the parents don't love their children and not because the children don't love their parents because they do but because the parents have problems they have no idea how to get help with and probably wouldn't even know how or where to ask for help and what those parents are often doing is they are using drink as a way of getting up in the morning to walk their children to school they're not usually waking up in the morning to get drunk and what they've found is that alcohol is keeping them in the world so to speak Whereas if they'd stopped drinking, then they can't see how they would possibly do the ordinary things in life. You know, go shopping, you know, pick up your children from school, do all sorts of things unless they had a drink. And I think if we start looking at at the problem of alcoholism like that, then we can start to unpick it and start making this world a much better place for the children. And then it will be better for their children and their children's children. Yeah. It will go on. But at the moment, what we have is we have such an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and, and such judgment is made on people who drink. Um, they're not, you know, they're not responsible for the ills of the world. And, and what we need to do is to reach out and give the help. That seems the perfect place to stop, Hilary. Does um, it? I'm OK. Say, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Where can people find Nicoa to bung you some cash if they would like to? If they would like to do that, that would be wonderful. And they can go to our, um, go to our website, which is nacoa.org.uk. And at the top on the right, you will see make a donation or something like that. And you can do it online that way. Or what you can do is to drop us an email. Um, my email is ceo at uk, And then I can send you um, information for making a donation and, you know, and do a sponsored event. And if you do a sponsored event, go, go on to Just Giving, the website that you will come to from our website. And there's lots of ideas then and you'll see what other people are doing. And even though you know, lots and lots and lots of, of the events have been cancelled, it's really interesting. I haven't been asked for money back from anyone at all. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, which is pretty amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team, at Standard Issue UK, or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy, and at Mixta Noonan, and I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well, at Standard Issue Magazine, and even Instagram, at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us, look at our faces. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Charlotte Amelia Poe, winner of the Spectrum Art Prize and author of How to Be Autistic. Charlotte, hello. Hi. So last year, you won the inaugural Spectrum Art Prize for your audiovisual piece, How to Be Autistic, and your book of the same title is out now. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to talk about your experiences. I didn't want what happened to me to happen to anyone else. And I thought maybe if, if I talked about it, then maybe someone would finally listen. And I thought if I just, if I just like sort of flayed myself, basically, then like people would pay attention a little bit. You've just said the phrase flayed yourself and your work is, is very raw in that you're not scared to expose the sometimes brutal truth about how you've felt and how society can make you feel was it quite tricky to revisit and explore those dark places yeah I I haven't like read it back since and it sort of feels like 
I don't know, it feels sort of like almost radioactive to sort of have it as a book now. It's sort of weird. I know it really helps people, but it's a very scary thing to have as sort of like proof that it happened. Very, it's very strange. I guess it must be reassuring sometimes, though, to have that proof that it happens because you were left feeling quite isolated a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, I think with trauma, I think you, you always have that proof. I mean, it doesn't go away. You explore throughout your experiences the various misconceptions that people have about autism. Could you tell me what you think are the most damaging misconceptions around autism? I think people think we're dangerous and we're not. We're more likely to be hurt by people than, or ourselves than we are to ever hurt people. I wish people saw that. Like the average age that autistic people die is 56, you know? Wow. We, we don't have long lives and we're nine times more likely to hurt ourselves than the average person. So this whole autistic people are scary misconception is, is so wrong and we need help and we need to not be looked at as other and as dangerous, really. I liked how you debunk one of the myths that I've heard, which is that autistic people don't have empathy, they can't recognise emotion, and you've absolutely debunked that as bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really important to me because once I was told that I couldn't be autistic because I love my mum, and that hurt so much. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we feel empathy what we don't necessarily know what to do when someone's crying because we just want to fix it and the way we fix it may not be the way that a neurotypical person fixes it but mm -hmm. we we definitely feel it and we we just we just so struggle with where to go from there i think yeah yeah i guess a lot of those misconceptions come from a lack of understanding of what autism entails on a day-to-day -day basis so it might be helpful for our listeners who haven't yet read your book, which I absolutely recommend them to do because it's, it's a brilliant, if sometimes harrowing, read. But could you please give us an idea of how autism affects you on a, on a daily basis? I have really, really, really bad anxiety. Um, I don't leave the house. I mean, obviously, no one's leaving the house right now, but I hadn't left the house for a month before this started. So kind of going a bit stir crazy oh. here. Um, depression obviously that's a really big one and um, the trauma just um, everyday things that people take for granted like going to the supermarket or like talking on the phone like this this is so hard and um, <laughs> you can tell, kind, of, kind of tell I'm struggling a bit yeah just leaving the house without taking loads of medication would be so nice and I can't do that for a long time, you didn't know why what was happening to you was happening to you. You were 21 before you were diagnosed, which is appalling, frankly. When you got that diagnosis, what did it mean to you and your family to have it finally labelled? It really helped my family because there was a lot of like resentment there because I was always treated as different or as difficult or sometimes like special it was good for them to be able to understand that I wasn't just being difficult and awkward, you know. Um, yeah. For me, it was it was sort of um, kind of bittersweet because I, I finally knew what was wrong with me. But at the same time, like with anxiety, there's sort of like not a cure, but it's manageable. Whereas autism, it's a lifelong thing. And it's just sort of learning to live with that when there's no resources out there is extremely difficult. Yeah. You just talked about learning to live with it. What has helped you feel more able to be yourself? I think finding communities online, like fandom communities, 
they give you I've found places to explore who you are and who you want to be especially the communities I'm in they explore a lot about trauma and recovery and sexuality and gender it's just a really safe space to sort of be creative in a way that won't garner critique it's just a very welcoming and open space and very creative and a lot of people are dealing with the same sort of thing and and that's so helpful yeah you've mentioned there being creative and obviously you won an art prize and having read your book it kind of came out of nowhere that you even entered did you get that confidence from those online communities um definitely i mean i i first I first started writing after watching um, Captain America, The Winter Soldier in 2014. And um, I didn't stop. I just I churned out like hundreds of thousands of words mm-hmm. a year. And I think it's all good practice. So, yeah, that, that really helped. There were lots of points in your book that I recognised and related to. You were horrendously bullied, the anxiety, depression... I think you've done a really excellent job of showing neurotypical people that we're we're not that different, that autism has its massive challenges, of course, but that it's not as terrifying as that label has previously suggested, which you touched on earlier. Is that something you aim to do? Yeah, I think especially now with the anti-vax movement, it more than ever seems to be that people are so scared to have an autistic child that they'd rather potentially ruin their lives then just accept them for who they are mm-hmm. and I think we need that level of acceptance and we need to be seen as equal and valid and maybe not like as able in some areas but definitely able in others it's just so hard to like go on the internet and see that someone's died because they're autistic and people defend that and it's so hard as this goes out it's world autism awareness week and you say in the book that awareness seems to be getting better So what actual changes would you like to see in the world to make it a better place and a more more welcoming place, I guess, for people with autism? I know, um, just from a personal perspective, that it's so hard to get mental health help. There's no one trained within a 25-mile radius in autism, and that's private, and the NHS doesn't have any training. Um, My brother and sister both work in the NHS, and they say that if they didn't know me they wouldn't be able to spot an autistic person and there are other people who graduated with them wouldn't be able to and there's just like I think they touched on it for a day yeah and that that's the training you get unless you seek out more and so I'm not under any kind of NHS help at the moment which is really hard I, I think especially with children I think having safeguards in place so people can be diagnosed a younger age so that they don't have to go through the sort of things that I went through and can have a kind of safer and healthier experience at school and to be able to actually look back on it and not be terrified at what happened to them would be just so nice and that's what I've really hoped to accomplish by writing How to Be Autistic and if that's the only thing I I accomplish then that's really, that would make me so happy. I think it's a call to arms. It's not aimed at me because I'm not autistic and you're talking to past you, I think, and also to anyone who might be autistic and reading it. It's so easy to relate and feel empathy for what you have gone through. Well, I think it is aimed at you because I think there's probably people in your life who are autistic who you don't even realise and who maybe they don't even realise. So I think just the knowledge and just being able to like say that like 
oh right I've got an autistic perspective now and I am just one autistic person we're all really different but we are real people and we do exist outside the caricatures you see on TV and so I think it is aimed just as much as at you as it is at any autistic person if not more so Charlotte where can people find out more about you I've got a website that's probably the best place to go I think it's charlottepoe.com it's pretty pretty easy so yeah are you still writing blogs and stuff? Mostly poems at the moment. Sort of dried up a little bit at the moment because this isn't a re- really a good time to be creative. There's very little to draw on. Which um, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I've got some stuff that I'm going to be uploading in the next few days. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. I am joined on the phone by excellent woman Rachel Paris. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm growing a lovely moustache. <laughs> I'm having the time of my life. How are you? I'm all right. My legs are hairier than they've ever been, which is providing a lovely blankety warmth. <laughs> and you um, are newlywed. Yeah, I know, but you know that all it all goes out the window this <laughs> stage. <laughs> The other day, I thought, oh, do you know what? Today I'll, like, put a dress on and maybe put some makeup on and wash my hair and try and look, like, acceptable, like the basic level of human acceptable. And it just didn't happen. Like, I got as far as putting a dress on, and I was like, "That's. I think that's enough. Already I feel overdressed. Yeah, for the situation. It's crazy, isn't it? I'm I, I'm going to start yeah. needing to buy more pajama bottoms in the same way that I need to buy more <laughs> jeans in yeah. normal life. Totally, I've, that, I've genuinely thought that. I thought I haven't got I haven't got enough crazy casual wear. Yeah, in my life. Now I ask, how are you? In a kind of more fraught way than I usually would, because oh, yes. my guess is that, or our guess is that you've had coronavirus. Has that has that been proven yet? Have you had a test? No, no, we haven't had a test because we're not Idris Elba. But, um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone who's. It's so funny on on Twitter. Everyone, you know, um, the same people who are always like, "Oh, you BBC liberal elite have probably all got tested," and obviously that's not true. Like the only people I know who've been tested are quite rightly NHS workers. Like, I don't know anyone in real life, yeah, apart from Idris Elba and a couple of footballers. So no, um, we haven't been tested. But yeah, me and my husband and loads and loads of our friends and family who we saw in the last month before isolation started have had what we now think might be it so basically it was it was like flu with more specifics we can't say for definite you've had it but i saw you no, tweeting no. what some of your symptoms were one of which was that you had no sense of smell and no sense of taste. And then immediately under that in my Twitter timeline was a thing that said, new COVID-19 symptoms announced. No sense of... And I thought, oh, she has had it then, hasn't she? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I think that's when I thought I probably... Because to be honest, though, Marcus was uh, like more like convinced that he had that we that we had it and I was really skeptical and I was like oh don't be so dramatic I think we've just had we've just had like a flu or something or a bad some kind of virus that it doesn't match up because we didn't have that cough we didn't have the cough we had a fever we had muscle aches we had really incredible fatigue for like a week so so tired really bad headache but I was really skeptical until 
two things made me think it was it. One was that literally about 40 people we know, and that's just people in our friendship circle who had the exact same symptoms at the exact same time. And then this loss of taste and smell, which, which just happened in the last few days. So, yeah, I think, I think it might, I think it, I think it might have been it. It seems too much of a coincidence for it not to be for like everyone that we know to have been ill with the same yeah. thing at the same time. Because I don't think, I've never had a flu that was as catching as that, but everyone got it. I was poorly about at the start, end of February, start of March. So when most people yeah. started waking up to this, and I yeah. actually stayed inside. I knew full well it was a cold because I had an absolutely streaming nose and a really chesty yeah. cough. None of the things, yeah. they're not the symptoms. But nonetheless, I kind of felt like of a moral responsibility to to not be seen to be spreading that around so that other totally, people yeah. didn't like, because I sort of saw in people's eyes this look when they looked at me if I cough. And I thought that's what it must be like just before they push you off the raft. Um, yeah, 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 like yeah. Like in films where, like, the sh- you're bleeding and the sharks are coming and they just push you <laughs> off. <laughs> Don't you think, though, like, there's there's quite a lot of, like, um, public shaming and policing yeah. going on around it. That, like you said, like, even even though it was really clear you hadn't even got it. Yeah. You know, people kind of judge you. And I think there's been a lot of that around the... I think the, the people who are online sharing vitriol about... I mean, I know I know some people have been a bit stupid about being in crowded places, you know, before and after the lockdown. But some of the things they're sharing is just people having tried to go for their allowed daily exercise yeah. in a massive, massive park, which they've got there and found, oh, God, it's London. It's heavily populated. Uh, and everyone is trying to keep two metres and quite succeeding in, in being two metres apart. But, you know, I, I think... I think we just need to be more, oh, I don't know, now we're on lockdown and social distancing remains like so, so important. But London is a really, really incredibly densely populated place and accidents happen. Yeah. you And I think now with, with some people, we're in a situation where you can't do right for doing wrong. You know? Yeah. It's nice to have the one thread of life that remains constant in this time of change, which is online people judging other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can, is there any chance you, got, you could maybe talk us through what your experience of this was? Oh, sure. What, yeah. what were your first um, symptoms? When did you first start to think, I'm not very well? The first thing I thought, I'm not well, but I didn't think it was corona, uh, was um, a headache for days, for days. So really, really constant something headache for about three days. And... I thought that was probably just down to me looking at the internet too much, yeah. to be honest, which perhaps it partly was. Uh, but then that led into incredible tiredness, like when you have flu, you know, when you can't get yeah. out of bed. You know, when it feels like your head's full of cotton wool, like your yeah. brain isn't really working. And then the thing that I found so weird, which is very true, the muscle aches and pains really severe pains I had them in my legs in my hips down my back and I had pain in my back for like four days I found that so interesting because quite I don't know it doesn't happen very often to connect that you know to a virus but um that was pretty much it for the sort of initial symptoms that all lasted about five days overall I think maybe six with the headaches and everything and then this loss of taste and smell 
which is just trippy. Like, it's so weird. It's been ages and it still hasn't come back, actually. Oh, really? Um, so now, if, if we, like, stick... If I stick my head in a pot of, like, coffee granules, I can just, just about get a whiff of it, but only just. And we still, <laughs> we definitely, we still can't smell ourselves. Like That might be a blessing, sure Rachel. <laughs> we, um, yeah, absolutely. That's a good thing, I think. So, um, so yeah, but, but we didn't have a dry, this dry cough, which, but neither of all the people that have had all the things that we've had, loads of them haven't had a cough, which is quite interesting because that's still sort of the number one thing. Oh, I had a fever as well. Sorry, we had fevers on and off yeah. um, throughout it. So, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to, to you know, if they do roll out these tests to see to see what's gone on and if we have. Because I think what I do think is, if, if, I think if we have, then I think thousands of people have. Because if our symptoms match it and we test it, is it then I think, like, I know hundreds of people who've had the same symptoms and no cost who will be like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I've been looking at all these stats that they're publishing and stats sort of mean nothing. I mean, America, mean nothing. America's tested more people than we have. So, of course, it's got a higher level of it than we have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think maybe like maybe the death statistics are more accurate because once you get once it gets serious, enough for that then you are going to be tested but i think the statistics about who's got it i mean yeah in this country mean absolutely nothing like no. i think i i think just talking around seeing online people describing their symptoms i think tens at least tens of thousands of people if not more have got it and no one's tested so they i wish they would i wish they would caveat the numbers i wish yeah. the government would say obviously this means absolutely yeah. so can I ask you about, I mean, obviously you work in the arts and 100% of your mm. colleagues are now out of work. Mm-hmm. I presume you've all been talking to each other. What's what's the mood? I would say there's been two stages of feeling, with, especially within, within comedy, because I know a lot of people in the arts, but obviously mainly in comedy. And one was the week when all, literally all of our work got cancelled which kind of was like a week of really slow realisation that we've all been made redundant for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Which was, it took me quite a while to react to that because it started bit by bit. So I was going to do the Stylist Awards with Ellie Taylor and that was the first thing that got cancelled. That was about, um, like, coming up for a month ago. So it seemed very early. We were really surprised. They cancelled it the day before and we were like, oh, that's odd. And it turns out they were just very on the ball with it. And then another gig got cancelled. And then another gig got cancelled. And then slowly we realised my tour, which starts in April, might not happen. Yeah. And I've just, you know, when you've been working towards a tour, gigging it and writing it, yeah. and direction and doing all of the admin for it, it's just really heartbreaking to cancel a, a tour. So I think that's going to be um, postponed. We're just sorting it now, but you don't know when to postpone it for. You know, you don't know if that'll be this will be over in autumn or not. And then everything. So the TV shows I had in the diary have gone. Literally, the only thing left is the Mash Report. Is the only thing that's left for me. And all of us had this happen 
uh, over the course of a week, all of our work disappeared. And it, it took me a while to, it was too surreal at first to react yeah. to. And then I just had a day where I just cried because it was just, you know, you do when you lose your job and a job that you've created something special for that's yours. You know, the, the making of a, of a tour show is something that you put your heart and soul into. And mine are very, pers- this was like the, a really incredibly personal show. And I was so excited to show it to people and to sort of, you have the momentum for that for the year in advance. And it was really heartbreaking for that to go away. And then, so that was the first stage and everyone had the same experience of just, you know, so many touring comments. Oh, it was quite surreal. So Ostentatious, which is on weekly in the West End at the moment, we went and we were sort of ready to do it because, you know, theatres hadn't been shut down or anything. And we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll go while we're allowed. And we got into costume and that was the night that the UK and West End wide theatre associations took the decision at 7pm to shut oh, every theatre. At 7pm, so we were in costume, the audience were in the foyer waiting to come in. Oh, man. And they took this decision and they had to go out to the audience and say, I'm sorry, we're not going ahead, we're shutting the theatre. And that happened in every West End theatre in London at the same moment. And so we got out of costume and came out and there were just hundreds of people actors and audience leaving the theatre to go home at the same time and it was incredibly it was a really sort of symbolic thing of like oh my god this is this is huge you know um so there was that stage where it was like about work and about really taking in that we've we've all lost everything and that also our jobs will probably be the last to return because even when small gatherings are allowed you know going into 700 seaters is probably the last thing that's going to come back. So, yeah, we're scared. I think everyone's really, really scared. And, you know, when Rishi Sunak didn't give anything for self-employed people or freelance people, there was a real feeling of like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Yeah. It's really, it's it's kind of, I think we, I still can't really get my head around it. Like, I've just literally deleted everything out of my diary for the next six months. So I, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's just just don't know what's going to happen and then the second stage where it was everyone and because at first it would just felt like everyone was carrying on as normal but our, all our work's been cancelled because we're the large gathering crew and then it became isolation and lockdown and more of a universal sort of community feeling of crisis which is a different thing, which is a very different feeling. And as we were saying, like, there is something, I don't know, you know, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be much positive about the pandemic, but it does feel like we're certainly, like, I'm talking to my, I'm talking to my friends more than ever. I'm talking to my family more than ever. Yeah. I feel so connected, you know, we're all kind of together in this. Like that moment with the NHS clapping last night. I just cried and I don't think I was the only one. I looked down the street and everyone looked so emotional and I think it was there was something about this desperate need that we all had for connection that really struck everyone. So yeah, now, you know, we're all just in the same boat, just riding it and seeing how it goes, I suppose. Well, I've been thinking about, you know, comedians and actors and, you know, because I know quite a few of them and I did do comedy for like five years when I was in my early 30s. Is that, uh, yeah. 
Yes, you can. I, I can see now that you can put stuff online and you can get like likes and stuff, but it's not mm. the same as the same, yeah. people being in a room and feeling the atmosphere. And if I'm totally honest, I think that a lot of comedians, that's where their their sense of self and, you know, I don't know how to explain this. I think their mental health is perhaps like mm-hmm. like tested by the fact that they are removed from that because it's not the same. Oh, I think, something up yeah, online. I think that's so true. Like hashtag not all comedians, but I think a lot of comedians, yes, definitely rely mentally on that praise yeah. <laughs> on that validity and on being the center of attention sometimes and on being a storyteller and just everything that comes with being you know in standing up and leading a room sort of people a room full of people enjoying what you do and yeah you I think it's fantastic the um the things that some comedians have done the stay at home festival and um you know there's fantastic things being made and i think that's the best thing that that we can do is just make other stuff and find a way around it and yet nothing nothing replaces the actual physical real life coming together of people and i can't wait cannot wait for it to come back no me neither to be honest and you know somebody offered us um because we're still working and people are obviously still working and somebody asked Mm. us about something in december and Mickey just sent an email to us saying we've been offered this thing in December. But to be honest, December might as well say on Mars because it feels so far <laughs> away from yeah. any idea of what normality might be. That with, with like some deadlines, like you can look at like China, you know, and see, look at Wuhan and see, like, oh, how long were they in lockdown before this stage? Yeah. And how long did this happen? But no one in the world has reached a point where they're not worried about it, where it hasn't returned a little bit, where they've got total control over it. So there's there's, there's no like amount of time that's like a precedent for us to look at for how long it might be. Yeah. You know, for all, so yeah, it's total free for all. Like that's the thing. And all of this, all of the reschedules, there's obviously a lot of rescheduling happening and all the rescheduling feels so um, like it's just for fun like a sort of academic exercise because really yeah well, how 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 on earth do we know how august september yeah. november december is going to pan out there's just, yeah um, there's just no frame yeah. of reference is there no, i mean not. from the comedy point of view i was thinking you know the only thing that's even sort of been i think kind of close to this was brexit in as much as it suddenly caused everyone to go oh shit I need to rewrite all my material because you know yeah. this thing has happened yeah. that we didn't think was happened but at least we could all still go and give our mums a hug you know when Brexit yeah. happened whereas I keep going to cultural references I keep saying oh this is like Shaun of the Dead or this is like the road or this is because I've got nothing else to compare it to there's the... I know nothing... I wonder what will happen with comedy material in the next year or two or even three years, I don't know, like, it's hard to know, but it does feel like, you know, then, again, you're looking at, you know, doing your shows later on, Yeah. but then you're thinking, well, I can't talk about all the stuff I talked about before, I can't talk about, you know, becoming a stepmom or getting married or getting trolled or any of that, all of the subjects seem completely pointless yeah. like they seem so like irrelevant when there's this huge elephant in the room but equally 
people aren't going to want to go to comedy shows where a hundred percent of comedy shows talk about coronavirus. Yeah. So I'm curious to know what comics will do with this, like whether you just have to acknowledge it a bit, but then talk about stuff like, you know, BC, like before Corona. Yeah. Um, or whether that will just seem totally mad to talk about that stuff. Oh, Rachel, it's been absolutely delightful to talk to you. Can, can Thanks, I... thank you. Normally we always end with the words, have you got anything to plug? Um, and tell me about the one thing in your diary. <laughs> the one thing left in my diary is the Mash Report, which is going out on Friday night from the 3rd. Um, and we're filming it in my home. Uh, so oh, wow. every every presenter, so Nish and Ellie and me and Steve, we'll all be filming it ourselves on rudimentary camera equipment in our home um but it's going out on bbc2 um as normal so if you fancy some current comedy watch the match report that's amazing please watch it because it's all that we have left hi hannah here just having a nice cup of tea and wanted to remind you that if you like what we do, you can help support us. You can do that by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to. And also keep me in tea. Thank you. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined on the phone by PT and media fitness expert, Anna Wright. Hello, Anna. Hi there. How are you doing, Jem? All right, thank you. Obviously a bit pregnant and a bit locked in my own home, but otherwise good. A bit stir-crazy. You've got company in a way, haven't you? In a a way, yes, I do. (laughs) In a way. I mean, she's not very good at conversation yet. On the subject of being stir-crazy and a bit bored, it Mm. is a particularly (laughs) tricky time... If you are, like me, someone who likes to sort of get out and about yeah. a bit and, and go yeah. to the gym and stuff. So, Anna, you're going to tell us a little bit today about what we can do to stay fit while in lockdown. I mean, this situation is a shock, right? I mean, this is a thing. It's a physical and it's a mental trauma. Um, being sort of suddenly separated from mothers and fathers and friends and it's ongoing all day. And I think people are handling it so well on the surface. Um, but I suspect people won't straight away recognise symptoms of anxiety and depression as a result of the situation. You know, after why or what will happen, what does tend to happen, and it's happening to me, it's happening to you know, people around me, lethargy and frustration becomes a norm. When people start experiencing these sort of depressive emotions, it's you are made, your body is designed to think and interact with people, and it's designed to move. I think at the moment people feel quite guilty for taking five minutes of some cells but we do, we really really need to we need to remember what our bodies are designed for when there's no structure today you just kind of drift a little bit so what i want people to do in terms of exercise is you know i want people to anchor themselves to a bit of a schedule and i know it seems a little bit counterintuitive to you know create a schedule and book appointment when it feels you've got all the time in the world but, you know, structure is really, really healthy. And like I say, your body was made to move. So we've got to address that. So what I'm saying to people, they need to change their perception of what exercise is. I think, you know, exercise 
is not just a life it's not a lifestyle thing anymore it's a survival thing exercise is not defined as going to the gym lifting weights for one hour it never has been it's just that's what you see that's what's conveyed and portrayed in tv and media exercise is a necessity it's in the absence of a more active life that we think you know all the time you know, man you know, hunt and gather so they're a bit more active it's a necessity exercise it exists because we don't move enough in the world that we live in now so don't see it as a luxury don't see it as a novelty at this particular time in your life when you're not moving enough when you when you're not doing the things that your body's meant to do you've got to knuckle down and make it a priority so first of all you have to see how vital it is for your sort of you know your sanity your survival as a sane human being you've got to give your body the movement it needs so first of all it needs to be done no ifs no buts it has to be done second of all change perception of exercise you don't have to put on kit you don't have to have dumbbells you don't have to go to a gym you don't even have to know what you're doing right now because there's loads of content out there now and there's loads of basic movements that you can start with that you don't need any guidance on you just need to watch good pt do it on the instagram feed for example and also like i say the time thing is a huge barrier to people like i haven't got time to do a workout you know what fine i totally this is having two kids i no longer roll my eyes when people tell me they haven't got time because I don't really have the time that I used to have. So what I do, I make time, I drop down and I do 10 push-ups and I put the kettle on. Mm. You know, you know, when the kid's having a really, really drawn-out toilet session, I do my squats. <laughs> it's, this is what I do because it's cumulative. Those things do do good for your joints and your lungs and your respiratory system and so forth. So, you know, just start. Your exercise needn't be five minutes even. Like I say, you just do a little bit of punching the air for 10 seconds, move on. By the end of the day, you should have accumulated a decent little, you know, decent bit of movement just to tweak and prod your muscles and keep them awake. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. You rest mm. up, you know. You don't need any equipment. You've got a wall, you've got a chair. You've got air. That's all you need. So, if you're saying, you know, you can mm. you can sort of accumulate your exercise over the course of a day, over the course of a day, roughly how much should we be aiming to do? Is it the sort of you know the half hour a day kind of thing? Yeah, that's what they recommend for optimal health, just to keep things ticking over. So, you know, if you can, but I, I don't think now is a time. I don't, I'm not impressed with anyone to get 20 minutes done. Like, you know, at the moment, I'm looking after two kids and my partner's working. So I genuinely don't have a second unless I miraculously get them to nap at the same time. So if you can't do 20 minutes, not a problem. If you can aim for 20, that's fabulous. You know, if you can do five minutes here, 10 minutes there, you know, and if you are, um, you know, an avid gym goer or somebody that really, relies on those kind of feel those you know those endorphins and so forth if you feel that you really mentally dip when you don't exercise then you need to do what you need to do you need to maybe get up a little bit earlier 15 20 half an hour earlier this is what i'll start doing next week um i'll be getting up half an hour before my kids do a workout Mm. or you know and i know it sucks after a long day i know it sucks but don't even think about it you know go down into the 
you know, living rooms, the kitchen, wherever you've got some peace and you do half an hour workout before you put the dinner on or while the dinner's on. You know, but you do have to schedule it in. Like I say, I know it seems counterintuitive and you've got all this time but on your hands to kind of make appointments, but you need it now more than ever, structure. Mm. What I'm saying is that, you know, find these points in your day mm. that you can latch on some exercise or do it in between. It's really, it won't always work out, but you you know, but you're more likely to succeed more often if you put that effort in. You know, it gives you roots. You know, you're growing roots in fitness if you you know it, the more you do the easier it becomes and the more you want to do the more the quicker you feel the benefits of exercise the easier it is to carve out time for it yeah. you know i think there's a real misconception of motivation and i'm just not motivated motivation doesn't it's not the thing that gets you into the gym it's the work you put in the gym gives you the motivation and when you see that kind of first ripple of a bicep or you know your bunk's a bit perky or you lose a bit of weight that's what that's motivation for you and then and then it's far easier then to kind of to train do you know what I mean because you've seen the, you know you yeah. see the fruits of your labor so don't expect to want to train and I say that to people as well exercise isn't a party it's not where you go to have fun all the time it is for your health your your business is is fitness and you have a gym and lots of mm. equipment at your home not everyone will have that but I've seen on your Instagram videos for example that you have lots and lots of tricks up your sleeve in terms of things that people yes. can use can you tell us a bit yeah. about the, the kinds of things people could use one of the first things I do, did I did a video a couple of weeks ago if you scroll through the feed use a wall mm -hmm. so you know you can stand a little bit of a distance away from the wall and do push-ups onto the wall you know so you just lower your chest closer to the wall and then push away and then you can make it a little bit dynamic by pushing away with a little bit more force clapping and then falling back into the wall and so forth and um, you can do squats against the wall so you just you know so you back to the wall walk the feet out a little bit and then just kind of you know slide down the door or the wall a little bit until your hips are parallel you that for a little bit because actually holding an exercise is really really I mean it's almost paramount to lifting a heavy weight mm -hmm. because it's time and attention you know when you hold a muscle one place it's having to constantly work there's no rest in either direction it's really good to do that kind of um, exercise you know and then you can you, know, you can do all sorts you can then turn that into a plie you can do tricep dips on your bottom step of your stairs you know so sit on the back step hands next to your side then slide your bottom down it and then push back up till your arms are locked out like I say you, you really can get some decent exercise in work all your major muscle groups and you don't need any um wall around you to do a lunge or a squat or to jog on the spot to do squat jumps they're, they're my favorite um aerobic exercise because they're both muscular and really aerobic but you know i always think you know, if you've got a short window of time you need to maximize on that short window of time by making by doing the most efficient exercise so not only are your glutes the biggest muscle on your body so the more you you know glutes will give you a bigger yield do you know what i mean because yeah. they're because they're your biggest muscle you burn more calories they secrete a lot of human growth hormone as well so actually if you want to just you know, develop any part of your body it's beneficial to work your bum a lot um so squat jumps is you know when you kind of when you lower your bum down as if you're going to go to take a seat and then you thrust from the ground you take a little bit of flight and then you land nice and softly so that's really aerobic and it's very very muscular because you're working both your fast twitch muscles for fast movements and slow twitch when you land nice and controlled. I mean, I'll put up a little video specifically illustrating a lot of the exercises that we've discussed. 
knee highs. So, you know, jogging on the spot, but really driving those knees up as high as you can, because mm-hmm. that's really ab- abdominal as well, because your abs are having to work really hard to pull those knees up a little bit higher than you, you would ordinarily do in a normal jog and stuff. Um, yeah, so you don't need anything for that. You don't need any skill, really. You just and you build that up gradually over time push-ups you can do them really easily but on your knees just you know if you can't if you can't push back up that's fine you just work in one direction you lower yourself down into the ground and then you just come back up then you lower yourself down you know it's a progression exercise there are loads of things that you can do but it's really important because i you know me and i think you as you say you're you know you're really active aren't you and you're used to kind of dabbling in all sorts of like physical activities and you know and you know probably i mean even if you don't know you know the actual science behind it I'm, I'm sure that you have felt dips in your mood oh, when yeah. you don't be able to get to the gym yeah. I get so down if I don't train because I, I've been training so consistently mm, I mean that I'm used to that constant surge of endorphins and you know serotonin and you know serotonin by the way you know people know that get helps you feel happy endorphins you know the same thing and you know the serotonin helps suppress stress and anxiety as well so that's another reason and you know stress and anxiety you know actually really damages your immune system so for the sake of further prevention against catching this awful virus you need to you know really help boost your immune system and exercise you know, it releases this serotonin and endorphins that give your immune system a boost. This is when you need to start addressing this kind of stuff. Mm. It's not just about aesthetics. No, not at it's all. It's about kind of making you stronger and more resilient. Yeah. And is there any better time to acknowledge this? And presumably, this like some of this stuff, if you are at home at the moment and you're like homeschooling or whatever, presumably some of this stuff you could actually do with your yeah, kids. Yeah, absolutely. You can incorporate it, you know, because they, they need the physical activity. God knows I chase my my. my my boy around the house you know trying to wear him out take him into the garden to do some stuff but yeah i you know we i certainly you know i certainly recommend trying to you know work with your children you go out into the garden jump around like i say there doesn't need to be any great artistry but yeah make it a pe session and i know that it's really hard to corral kids and get them to do what you want but they are creatures of habit as well so your first session with the kids is what i found with my boy i mean i've got a girl as well but she's only one and I'm too lazy to walk at the moment. <laughs> the, boy, <laughs> the boy, though, is nuts with a short attention span. So it's taken me a good few weeks to get it into him that when I train, he needs to join in and it will be fun. You know, but persevere. You need to persevere with your kids. Not all kids are kind of super sort of well-behaved and lo- love the school process. So... You know, it's it's hard, but if you make it a habitual thing, like you know, sort of half an hour after breakfast, you go into the living room or you go wherever, and you start jumping up and down, doing squats. And it doesn't matter if they run around you, does it? Really, you can still crack on and do your exercises. You're going to try and do a little Instagram video for us, where you sort of demonstrate some of the stuff we've talked about on this call, which is excellent. Where can we find you on the Instagram? It's Anna Rife underscore personal training. And that is on Instagram. And also you're, you have various online bits and pieces so people can get in touch with you and, and find out a bit more about that. So at the moment, what I'm finding is very helpful for people. So I'm doing online PT at the moment. What that 
constitutes is you have I'm, I'm Skype calling people or WhatsApp calling people. I'm designing programs specifically for the sort of environment. So I'm not just turning out um, generic programs because I mean everyone's life yeah. is so different. How many kids you've got completely dictates you know or you don't have with the space you have. So. I do a quick email interview with them, you know, what space do you have, what kit do you have, what experience do you have, what time do you have, um, and then I create a program around that for them, and then we have four Skype calls for me to demonstrate that workout for them with them, and then they get a new one each week for four weeks, and that's working out really well because I actually don't have time for one-on-one training online at the moment, so... So that all sounds amazing. Anna is on Instagram. You can find her there. And if you would like to talk to her about any of her PT services, you can get in touch with her there. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster was affecting us deep, deep, deep down this week? This week, we watched The Core a film that I probably should have learnt some information about, like, when it was made, but... 2003. There you go. Well done. Thanks, Mick. Because it just kind of lay there. I decided it's like a flaccid penis, this film. It had all (laughs) of the right elements for a fun night, but it just never produced, did it? (laughs) Despite having a very phallic ship. Yeah. So it opens in Boston with a scene like reminiscent of The Leftovers, as in a, a percentage of people just appear to all just sort of drop dead at the same point. I mean, they don't drop dead in The Leftovers, they disappear, but it's the same principle. And buses crash and fairground rides go round and round and, you know, the usual. Then we go to Aaron Eckhart. Well done, Jen, you're going to get a man of science here. Oh, he's yeah. delicious as well. He's the sexiest scientist I've ever seen. Uh, I thought it was interesting, mm-hmm. this film, because I thought that it's full of those people that everybody can't decide on whether they're sexy or not. All of them in this film are like, <laughs> is Sammy Tucci hot? I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes not. I don't think he Aaron, is. Aaron Eckhart is handsome, but he's oddly like about as sexy as an amoeba in this I film. I think he's sexy, but he's got frosted tips and that's unforgivable. <laughs> and Ooh. he doesn't tuck his shirt in, which um, is how you know he's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he's married to his job because all the best people are. (laughs) (laughs) So he gets taken to Washington and immediately works out it's something to do with magnets and pacemakers. Then we cut to London where loads of pigeons fall out of the sky at Trafalgar Square and they they (laughs) take out a bus that's being driven by a man who looks like he's from the 1800s. (laughs) Gary said to me, he went, when is this supposed to be set? And I said, oh, <laughs> London is always the past in American films. <laughs> I bet there was a man with a bowler hat and a rolled up umbrella. I don't like pigeons because they're dirty. That scene was basically like my worst nightmare. I didn't know how heavy they were. <laughs> they are not. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to clock up a lot of, um, what is the thing, the science thing. Shit, I can't remember. Provably bad science. You're right, Jen, because the answer to everything in this is just, why is it happening? Science. Because science. And and there's no (laughs) further explanation to any of it, right? So next we see Hilary Swank in space, and she nearly crashes her space shuttle because science. Oh, has she not just done her period? (laughs) Science, like Hannah said. Yeah, yeah, that is science. That's biology. (laughs) They've got to be careful, though. If she's on her period, she might attract space bears. <laughs> a bit more science there. So eventually they decide that what's gone wrong is the core of the earth 
has stopped spinning, at which point somebody says, how can this have happened? Like it was something preventable. Like it was like, how did we allow this to happen? And it's one of many, many, many amazing pieces of dialogue in this. The other great bit is when they're coming back. I'm just going to jump forward. And Aaron Eckhart says, at this speed, we'll be home in a third of the time, which is like the sort of thing my dad used to say on the M6. It's not really a Hollywood (laughs) film thing, is it? It's it's very odd. I was just going to say on the bad dialogue thing, although I don't, this would be a spoiler and you'll be coming to this, so I won't go into any detail, but there's quite a lot of dear God and God no surge. Dear God. Oh God. Like it's really, um, yeah, it's great. Poor Serge. Yeah. There's an amazing bit where he, where Aaron Eckhart decides to explain this to everyone by holding a pinch. <laughs> this is my favourite bit. <laughs> right. Don't look, peaches, says, guys. Like, peaches are bad. The pit, the, the, pit, the pit is the core and he explains it. And then he says, and so basically what's going to happen, they just turn a huge fucking blowtorch on <laughs> Like it's in any way representative of science. I could have pressed stop and that film would have peaked at that point for me. Oh, do you remember Fruit? <laughs> oh, sorry. Isolation. <laughs> you can still get tinned peaches. <laughs> then they go to Utah to meet Delroy Lindo, who's made a laser in the, uh, in the, <laughs> in the jungle. So we're kind of collecting our, our heroes here. But he's also in a different film. He's having a lovely time and I'm there. Yeah. But he appears to be in a completely different film to the rest of the film. <laughs> And then they go to meet an actor I've seen in loads of stuff, but I haven't written his name down, who plays a character called Rat. DJ Qualls. Who is a hacker. Yeah. He's got a touch of Mackenzie Crook about him. Oh, you um, mean generic mm. early 2000s weirdo? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's Mr. Rat to you. <laughs> and he gets raided by the police and he does something incredible. He attempts to flush floppy disks down the sink. They have waste like, disposal units in America, oh, yeah. don't they? Even so, I don't think you could get a floppy disk down there. I can't even remember what a fucking floppy disk is, mate. But it all it all fits into your flaccid penis theory. <laughs> so then they decide, you know... Oh, by the way, I'm going to say, what the fuck is that font they are using? It's very, like, very Microsoft-free fonts, isn't it? When they go to Utah and it runs along the bottom. Oh, yeah. So I am going to have that on my on my sheet. Anyway, then they decide, science, that um, they're going to use weapons of mass destruction to save the Earth, of which they are all enjoying the irony in this. They're like, can you imagine? It might be nuclear weapons that save the Earth. And they're going to go down and, like, basically jumpstart the core is that because they had watched 1998's Armageddon? Where I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think that to maybe the they had. So anyway, so then they basically go into the core and it's like, that's when the CGI really, really just dies on its ass. There's a bit where they, they sort of crash land into all these crystal things and it kind of looks like a toothpaste advert. It kind of looks like when they go and <laughs> be gone, plaque. I thought it looked <laughs> like um, where Superman lives. Uh, Krypton. Krypton, yeah. Um, but Bonnier. New York? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were very pretty amethysts. Yeah, very pretty. Very, pretty. very markedly looked... different to Jules Verne's journey to the centre of the earth. I was upset that there were no lizards. 
Yeah. I think it was around about now when Gary went for a wee and I didn't stop it because we didn't want it to last any longer than a tattoo. And then <laughs> he came back yeah. and he said, what's happened while I've been for a wee? And I said, they've landed in some bonnie crystals, but then the roof started to catch fire. I don't know. And then he sat back down. <laughs> 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 nothing because they don't bother explaining anything in this film because science like i actually at one point had to go on wikipedia and work out what was happening in the plot and you shouldn't really have to do that it should kind of be clear especially um, when the plot is actually really really torturously simple of crew encounter problem crew solve problem one crew member dies crew encounters problem crew yeah. solves problem another <laughs> member dies That's what well exactly that bob falls in the lava lake Oh, no, Bob gets hit through the head with a bit of lava and then falls in the lava lake. Then Serge dies in a very... The the Frenchman, he dies in a very... What seems to be a very cool way. He's like, no, leave me, it'll be fine. And then they bolt on this other scene that it looks like an audience didn't like it. And they refilmed another scene in which they're talking to him on the screen and Aaron Eckhart is bawling and, yeah. God knows, Serge! And then he gets (laughs) compacted. I liked it when he was just very French. Yeah. Very French crushing. I have to say, I didn't see this bit because we fast forwarded 45 minutes. <laughs> Sorry. I feel like I've let you And it you was still too down. long. It was, oh yeah, massively too long. <laughs> it's her first disaster and she's already fucking cheating. <laughs> the balls on the it's Millican. It's called editing. I made it much better. <laughs> it skipped, was 45 minutes longer than it needed to be, to exactly. be fair. Exactly. Thanks, Jen. It was two hours, 15 minutes longer than it needed to be. Well, yeah. <laughs> it had some really just like, like there was a bit where they all, de- they decide it's, I mean, it's obviously going to get hotter. Science, don't worry why it's getting hotter, just science. So it's getting hotter and it all gets a bit of Tennessee Williams where they're all shutting the thing. But then they cut back to Mr. Rat, who's typing yeah. And he's type. I've never seen someone typing so hard they were sweating. That actually happens. <laughs> no, in he's film. crying. He's crying. Oh, he's is not he? Sweating. He's crying because he doesn't know that he can delay destiny. He can't stop destiny. I think Hannah. that's my favourite bit of this whole experience is that Hannah can't tell sweating from crying. Difference between crying and sweating. That's the story of my life, Sarah. <laughs> Just the story of my life. And then the rest of it. Like then the, the, the next bit. Basically, they all take it in turns to get stuck underneath the bomb. And then do some last-minute maths. It's like really shit past the parcel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, then, then we uh, lose Stanley Tucci, who is smoking on a spaceship. Yeah, which I seemed wondered weird about for that. 2003 film. I wondered about the health but... and safety of that. I thought he was going to cause an explosion. I thought that's where they were going. At the very least, cancer in someone else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't believe like they had a Frenchman on board, and yet it's him who gets to go out smoking a cigarette. Exactly. I've only just found out that Stanley Tucci died. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I actually watched it and I missed that. (laughs) I felt bad for him because he's a bald man. And they they must have been, when they cast him, they were like, we're going to give you hair. And he's like, woo-hoo-hoo. And then they show him what hair they're going to give him. (laughs) And it's better to be bald. (laughs) Yeah. It really is. I don't understand why they do that to actors. I, I really don't. I mean, Stanley Tucci has been bald for a long, long time as well. So yeah. it just seems... Maybe it gives him more credibility if he's got a bit of a fringe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but they keep cutting back to, whatever you want to call it, mission control. With the woman from Scrooged. That's who yeah. it was. It's like a really, really passive Apollo 13. 
Like when they cut back in Apollo 13, everybody's doing something. In this, everybody cut back and everyone's just going, ooh. <laughs> and that's it. It's like nobody's actually doing anything even vaguely useful except cry sweating. It's like watching our government during the current <laughs> yeah. crisis. So then they let some bombs off and they start the they core spinning again. And then they think they're going to be stuck down there. But we know they're not because Hollywood. And science. And science. And Wales. And Wales. Well, there's a great bit where they end up underneath, like, just on the seabed, but they've got no way of contacting anyone. And Hilary Swank decides to, like, lay this out. Like, this is our current situation. And she says, like, we're under the sea. Nobody knows we're here. And I, I was like, like, seriously, I was well expecting the next line to be, should we just fuck? Because <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> what you would do, right? But instead, they both kind well, of just... How would Hannah manage if she can't tell sweat from tears, though? I know. <laughs> she wouldn't know if anybody was enjoying the orgy or not. <laughs> she gets turned on when they start crying. <laughs> <laughs> is is um, one of the end points uh, that they all resolve to never eat peaches again? Because <laughs> they find them too traumatic. <laughs> When I was cleaning out my shed, because I'm clearly bored, I found a blowtorch that I didn't even know I owned. And I have a blowtorch. And now I want to try and prove every point to anyone by holding a thing and going, (laughs) if this happens, then this happens. And then going, (laughs) burning it with a blowtorch and then going, point proved. Why do you have a blowtorch? Fucking hell, if we get through this crisis, humanity's in danger again. (laughs) Dunleavy's got a blowtorch. We're all fucked. Uh, Is it a big one or like a little Jamie Oliver one? It's about this big. I'd say it's yeah, a it's big, big one. one. It's like oh, yeah. it's like a DIY one, rather than oh. a cooking one. Right. Okay. She could do a family size creme brulee rather than just an individual. <laughs> Individuals. Yeah. I've just had a, I just had a thought. Perhaps how I could do me chicken now. I haven't got an oven. Oh no! You'll just, end up just with the shit. Go out with the blowtorch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Don't eat yeah. that. Don't I mean, do that. it, but report back. <laughs> Make sure the juices run clear, as I'm sure you've heard many times before. <laughs> the one <laughs> the one positive thing I'm going to say about this film is that they don't end up a couple at the end of it, which I actually genuinely thought was 100% going to happen and bores me in films, where they just go, oh, you're a man, you're a woman, you're only two people left at the end. Yeah, let's, let's make you a couple. And that didn't happen. Uh, and then we just got the 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 world and then with another really weird font a font that looked like it should have been like you know a historical epic font so it was very confused i just found it it wasn't it wasn't so bad that it was good it was just so bad absolutely it was yeah. boring yeah. it was yeah. intensely boring and too long levels of inanity yeah but i did think it was quite fun when that man so when they're on the bridge in san francisco and all the microwaves come out and then that man's arm got microwaved and he yeah. sort of went, he kind of goes like, oh, ouch. <laughs> and, and his arm's on fire. And then, <laughs> and then he's like a bit concerned about the bridge. And it's like, dude, your arm's just been microwaved. Like, <laughs> where is your focus? The funny thing about the bridge, when like, because I missed that bit, like basically you see something coming through the water and then the bridge collapses, the Golden Gate Bridge. And I thought... Well, what the fuck is that supposed to be? And then literally the next scene they're going, well, I don't know what happened in San Francisco. <laughs> and I'm like, if you can't even be bothered to try and think of a thing. Yeah, no, the water the water got really hot. It the was a microwave. Really hot and was boiling and it was microwaved. He they said, said they found a breach in the sky. Yeah, they <laughs> said. Rats, 
So when they're down there, he's like, oh, do you remember that bit earlier when I said, like, something might get microwaved or something like that? And then he goes... Guys, do you remember the peach? (laughs) And he's like, oh, it turns out something's going to get microwaved now. And then that guy's arm goes red and he's like, ooh. Hannah's got a microwave, haven't you, Hannah? I do have a microwave. (laughs) No oven, but a microwave. And a blowtorch. You've got all of the cooking utensils they've got in this film. I do. I'm going to go and try and shove some floppy disks down me, uh, down me garbage disposal this later. This has got filthy. I don't want to hear about you shoving floppy disks down your I'm garbage disposal. I'm not sure you disposal. should be calling it that. You do you, darling. You do you. I need to get my piece of paper, so I'm going to move. Sorry, it's just over there. Okay. Yeah, so Sarah doesn't have a bingo sheet. That's all right. I'll join in with yours. It's fun. I can make you one, Sarah, if you want. There's loads of things that I've said, if only I had space for that now. Oh, okay, I'm sure we I'll have, have another one in. then. Okay. I haven't got a lot on, if I'm honest, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> it'll fill five minutes. You are welcome. <laughs> um, Once she's got rid of those floppy disks, she's all yours. Right. Are we doing a count up? Yeah. I think I've got four, but if you would allow me an honorary coronavirus analogy instead of a Brexit analogy, then I might have five. Seems fine. I've got seven. Wowzers. I've I've got four. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Science. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My eyes, the CGI. I want to take the bit where the lava first starts pouring through from that, from the cavern. I think you can get even earlier than that. When she's flying a shuttle... The shuttle just in space. I was like, is that supposed to be a simulation? Oh no, it's supposed is to it be. Is it meant real. to be space? I thought she was like on the Amiga or something. Like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. She was on the Commodore 64. <laughs> <laughs> so that's two. It was all going so well until I sprained my ankle, slash got hit by lava, then fell in a pool of lava. Yep. Adopt brace position and oh actually five. What the fuck is that font? Five. <laughs> I have five. Okay. Jen, do you want to hit us up with your four and possibly fifth? Okay. So, piss poor English accent. There's loads of them in Trafalgar Square. Yeah. Oh, darling, that pigeon is incredibly heavy and heading right for that us. That pigeon is heavier than science would have me believe. So, uh, there's a lot of provably bad science in this. There's a lot. Can you smell burning? Yes, I can. It's my arm. <laughs> it's the centre of the earth. And only a geologist slash man of natural science would wear this everything he's wearing and his hair and then if you will allow me an honorary coronavirus analogy it's everything kicks off and actually it's really fucking boring (laughs) (laughs) yes allowed i have got nature you cruel mistress uh mid-disaster punch-up farewell major landmark bridge collapse there's two separate ones there because the coliseum goes first and then the golden gate bridge could title be a porn film title Absolutely, especially with that phallic ship as well. Captain willing to go down with ship slash plane slash building. Yep, yep, yep. And where are the fucking women? There's a whole two of them. Yeah. A whole two. No women of science in this film. No. I don't really know. What's her job, the lady from Scrooged? She's sort of mission control for astronauts, but instead she's looking after the Terranauts. Oh. I think I fast forwarded through her. Yeah, she's like Lloyd Bridges in Airplane and she absolutely picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. (laughs) As I think we all have. So I won. So I'm going to pick Con Air. Yes! Yes! I'll watch all of that, I promise. (laughs) 
I've already got Steve Buscemi being creepy. He's creepy in all the films, so I've already got... Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster movie? So I'm already winning, lads. Well, we'll see what's on my sheet, though. Is it just going to be the cast? (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely going to add, after you said that about Delroy Lindo, does this person think they're in a different film? Because that is the classic (laughs) thing about Nicolas Cage in Con Air. He doesn't realise that he's in the same film as everybody else. (laughs) Standard Issue. For all women.